Hey, Green Future Growers. Welcome to Season 3. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes for free or follow on your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Join Patty Armbruster and I for Grow Live on YouTube Live Saturday mornings coming to you in 2021. We'll be answering your questions. We'll be um, laughing and sharing information that you want to know because they're going to be answers to your questions on YouTube Live Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. Montana Standard Time, and 8 a.m. Pacific. Send us your questions. You can submit them at the organicgardenerpodcast.com forward slash patty. You can email me at orgpodcast at gmail.com. You can send them to Mike's Green Garden at gmail.com. Ask Patty Live. Grow Live with Jackie and Patty. We'll be answering your questions. What do you need to know to grow healthy food in your garden? Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Tuesday, December 15, 2020. I told my husband this morning, Christmas might be here before I finish decorating our tree at this rate, but you're probably, it's probably 2021 when you're hearing this. So happy new year. And I have an amazing guest on the line. He dazzled me when he sent me an email with these amazing, it's like exactly what I visioned the very first time I heard of aquaponics and I see the grocery store with the food growing in the grocery store. He might be like, that is not it at all. (laughs) But that's what it reminds me of. I was showing my husband this morning and it's just like here to talk to us about the future of agriculture is Eddie Badrina. So welcome to the show, Eddie. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on this. Well, we're glad to have you here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and then you can tell us about Eden Green and everything you've got going on. And Absolutely. Uh, so um, Eddie Badrinas, I'm the CEO of Eden Green Technology and uh, it's a tech, Eden Green is basically a platform, uh, a technology platform that is able to grow food, uh, produce, uh, greens, uh, herbs, uh, some some uh, berries, peppers, but able to grow in such a way that's uh, safe, it's consistent, and it's it's accessible to everyone. And so, at the end of the day, we're just trying to change the way that we grow produce and feed people, and we're also just trying to change the way that we define locally grown. And uh, and that to me is, man, that's what gets me going in the morning is just thinking like how much more accessible uh, can we make locally grown food uh, to to everyone and not just the folks who can afford to go to the higher end groceries or afford to go to the farmer's markets on Saturdays, but really everyone. How can we change the way that they can have access to nutritious, fresh food? I just got to ask like really quick is also like, I feel like a big part of locally grown. I mean, certainly there's the cost point and, and access, but also like to me, a big part of it is reducing that transportation. And then also, well, I guess this is where you're coming up with the nutrients. Like a lot of my guests lately have been talking about how 
the produce we're getting because it's coming from so far away it's picked before it's ripe and it doesn't have yeah. the nutrient values that something that ripens on the tree and certainly the flavor we all know is missing yeah you know i was just having this conversation the other day with uh with a, a non agriculturalist a non i mean they really don't pay attention to their food uh but it's amazing like when you backtrack, when you reverse engineer how that uh, that left that leaf lettuce or you know that banana got to your plate, uh, got to your counter, your kitchen counter, and what how early they have to pick it, uh, it's kind of astonishing, right? And and you hit the nail on the head. There's so much that gets left out uh, of from our nutrition because they have to do that. And even genetically, the way that, uh, that plants are being uh, bred to last longer uh, through that supply chain uh, or that they're able to mature at a certain rate once they're picked uh, because they know it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a week or two uh, to get to someone's plate or someone's kitchen counter. Uh, that's affected the, you know, the overall nutritional value of our food. Uh, and it's affected, you know, honestly, there's the safety aspect as well. So uh, I, I think one of the, it's so multi-layered, it's so much to unpack, but I think at the end of the day, you know, if we can provide uh, produce uh, in such a way that gets to people's, uh, uh, gets to people's plates faster uh, and, uh, and there's there's less uh, call it transport time uh, in that system. There's a whole bunch of benefits from there, not just from uh, nutritional value, but from an environmental value of you know the transport costs, logistics costs, uh, but then also you know also just from a, a price perspective too. Uh, being able to drive down that price for the average yeah. consumer because they don't have to pay those intrinsic shipping costs. Right. And they don't have to pay, uh, you know, the the costs that that the grocers and the retailers build in for loss. Right? A, a lot of the produce that you see on the wet walls or in the clamshells uh, that only 40 or 50, you know, sometimes 60 percent of that makes it to uh, to that wet wall or to that uh, to the clamshells. The other 40 or 50 or 60 percent gets tossed because it's just not good. It's not presentable. Maybe it's wilted. Maybe it's, you know, moldy. Uh, it gets tossed before, you know, because in between shipping and distribution, by the time it gets to the warehouse, it's just not good anymore. Is so the there's a lot of all that um, thing in the grocery store that's spraying the produce that yes, also yes. drives me crazy and makes the produce so much harder. Like, I just don't get that. Yeah, you know, it's it's partly presentation, uh, but it's partly too. It's you know, it they're trying to replicate what you see if you see photos of ours uh, of our technology and our greenhouses. They're trying to replicate what we're actually doing, but in a but we're doing it in such a way that it's really actually growing on those walls. Um, and so I think so that's for a, listeners who haven't seen your photos and don't want to tell a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, if you go to eatinggreen.com, you can see all sorts of photos. But basically, if, if you go walk into one of our greenhouses, like close your eyes or just imagine you walk into a greenhouse that's about 24 feet high. Uh, it's about an acre and a half uh, under roof. 
And the first thing you see is an 18 foot wall of greens. And these, these walls, uh, they're made up of our towers. They're patented uh, growing towers that are 18 feet high. Uh, they've got about 36 plant spots in each tower. And each plant spot is its own little microclimate in which uh, this, uh, I'll just call it, you know, for example, butterhead lettuce grows. And uh, they grow, we, our greenhouses uh, have what's called a perpetual harvest because we've got a hundred rows, call it in, in one greenhouse. And in each row, uh, it's in some stage of uh, growth. So some rows maybe just have been planted. Other, other rows are midway through their growth cycle. And then the you know, other rows uh, are about ready to be harvested or are, are being harvested and then cleaned and then getting prepped for the next uh, harvest that to be planted. So uh, it's a perpetual harvest system where every day, every week, uh, there is a, a row or two or three or four being harvested. And the benefit of that is you're constantly getting fresh greens. Uh, and the greenhouse is just pumping out harvest after harvest after harvest. Uh, and, and our technology is so uh, plant-centric, and it's giving the plants only what they want when they want it, uh, that uh, the, the, har- the life cycle or the growth cycle of a plant uh, is anywhere from, I'll call it, uh, 20 to you know, 35 days. So uh, one of our greenhouses, if you just you know, did it over and over, uh, would have 11 to 13 harvests a year which is astonishing. Uh, and and that, that produces around 400 to 450 tons of food in a year out of an acre and a half. You know what I'm wondering, I, you probably maybe get this question, or I, you know, like, do you, do you have also like a patent in one for like the small scale farmer like me who wants this like in my laundry room? <laughs> <laughs> so well, I think we can, I think we want to work towards development of that. Uh, but our mission is to feed as many people as possible. And so we're trying to do it on a scale that makes sense to feed whole communities. I think we're, we're not trying to be the silver bullet of it all. Uh, I think there's there's absolutely space, and there ought to be space for folks to have those tower gardens, or for restaurants to have you know uh, one wall of greens. But when you talk about what makes our technology special, it's the fact that we're able to grow that amount of produce safely and consistently uh, that can that can feed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people uh, from one greenhouse. Yeah, well, I don't know, like, I might have interrupted myself at the beginning, because what really got me was your, this one greenhouse is going to provide 30 full-time green jobs, and, like, that's a big part of my show, like, I just changed it to the Green Organic Garden last December, before that, it was the Organic Gardener podcast, because Uh, we're big on, I call my listeners green future growers, like, we're big on the Green New Deal, and things like that. Yeah. You know, the, the, that's another layer to unpack with, uh, with our model is that an acre and a half greenhouse, one of our acre and a half greenhouses, uh, you're correct, employs up to 30 full-time people. And it's not a dead end job. 
the the lowest uh, on the you know the the lowest worker uh, on the on the org structure in our in one of our greenhouses, they can learn the basics of it in about two hours. And they'll start harvesting. They'll start with planting. They'll start with seeding, propagation. Uh, they may start with production, so packing and production. But we give them a chance. Each one of these greenhouses gives them a chance to work their way up in an industry that's only going to grow and grow and grow in the in the coming years. I've seen estimates anywhere from, you know, twenty five to a fifty billion dollar industry in the next ten years just for vertical farming. So when you think about the the possibilities, the career possibilities for folks working in these greenhouses, uh, it really is sky is the limit. And then when you think about where you put these greenhouses, because it's only an acre and a half, and we can build slightly smaller, actually, uh, it, it affects the profitability of these greenhouses as economic units, but we can build them slightly smaller. But even take an acre and a half, an acre and a half greenhouse uh, which, by the way, is equivalent to five acres of a traditional greenhouse, and it's equal to anywhere from 35 to 40 acres of traditional farming uh, land. But my question that's going through my head is, how big is that compared to like a grocery so, store? To me, it looks like, a, is it like the size of a grocery store? Is it bigger, smaller? Like uh, it's, it's, it's probably, uh, I would say it's probably half the size of a Costco. Uh, under under roof, uh, maybe even maybe even a little a little less, uh, but an acre and a half, you know that that's really not as from a footprint perspective that's not a lot of land, uh, and then you no. think about you know you think about okay where's an Although acre and a half growing wise yes <laughs> my right. husband has what we call the mini farm and I thought it was like a quarter to a third of an acre mm -hmm. and technically it's really only like. My friend Patty came and she's like, it's probably a tenth of an acre. Like it's pretty small and it's pretty, it's a lot for him to right. handle by himself. So an acre and a half, and like Jean Martin Fortier, who grows an acre and a half up mm -hmm. in Quebec, I mean, he produces a lot of food, but this is a this yeah, is a different scale. Right. This is a whole So you think scale. about that acre and a half and that amount of produce, and you think about where that ought to be located. Well, because we have such a small footprint, we can put these in the middle of urban environments with ease uh, because all we need is that footprint, which is relatively small. And then we just need municipal water and then consistent electricity. Uh, so that's a, I think that's the, the promise. And uh, we're actually exploring, and we've got a couple of interested uh, clients who are interested in putting these on rooftops uh, because the footprint is so, uh, so versatile and, uh, and even as as small as a you know a, a twenty thousand square foot rooftop, which is you know or a parking garage, which is the top of most parking garages, that's a that's an economically viable greenhouse that can be put on there. So, and then would uh, it be outdoor instead of indoor? You'd still have the greenhouse. It's like, a greenhouse. Just a roof? Is it like is it does the sun shine in or there's lights on? It's top a of that full greenhouse, greenhouse with complementary LED lighting. Yeah. So, so think about, um, and, and again, like I would just encourage you to, to visit the website to see, but it's a full on greenhouse uh, with, uh, with poly, uh, polycarb walls and, uh, and ceilings. So it's, uh, it receives all the sunlight, 100% sunlight. And then because of seasonal adjustments, 
uh, or cloudy days, uh, we have complementary uh, LED lighting. And I think that's one, uh, you know, probably a big difference between your controlled environment agriculture, CEA, as we call it in the industry. Uh, most full CEA uh, greenhouses, they're fully enclosed. Well, they're fully enclosed because they want to control the, the light spectrums. But what happens is uh, it ends up uh, jacking up your electricity costs, you know, from an operating expense level. Uh, I, I've seen greenhouses fully enclosed, not greenhouses, but fully enclosed uh, are, uh, ag uh, growing structures. And, and they've got thousands of lights tens of thousands of lights in there that are running electricity five times what we're running. Uh, so, so not only, not only do your capital expenses are raised because those lights are very expensive, but your operating expenses from a day-to-day level, you're just consuming vast amounts of electricity. So we've solved for that by putting this in a greenhouse uh, so it can utilize the sunlight as much sunlight as we can, and then uh, to make it consistent throughout the year, we have we have grow lights, but they don't need to run full time. Like, uh, and we don't need near as many grow lights as as the as the enclosed structures. And is that kind of part of why you're choosing lettuce? Because one thing, like people have talked about on my show, that tomatoes grow best in a greenhouse because you can provide that ideal thing but tomatoes of course obviously are warmer weather crop whereas lettuce and also they take up a little more space maybe have a longer growing season like is that why you're choosing lettuce so the the great thing is we've got about 50 varietals that we can produce uh commercially viable so you know the model really is you know a an, an entrepreneur-led investor group, a nonprofit, a uh, a municipality or a nation-state even would buy our technology, uh, would would allow us to build a greenhouse for them, help manage it, and then license our technology, and they would then take that, and that is an economic unit. So this entrepreneur-led investor group uh, would then you know sell the offtake, which is the harvest, sell the harvest to a retailer, to a distributor, to a supplier, or in, t- in terms of a nonprofit or a municipality, they would grow it, uh, and then may, may, they may subsidize it uh, and sell it at a reduced rate to their uh, to their community, or just give it all away for free. Uh, and you know that is uh, that's that's the hope. Uh, with our technologies that people would use it for different uh, different use cases. But then back to the varietals, uh, you know, depending on whether you want to be commercially viable or not and have it be profitable, uh, you there's about 50 varieties you can choose from that you can grow in there. And it's not just lettuce. It's kale. It's arugula. It's spinach. Uh, we've got chard and collard greens and basil. Uh, you know, the the list goes on and on and on. So it's not just lettuce, but lettuce is a a, a basic food stuff that everyone needs and wants. Well, yeah, I mean, and if you look at what people shop for, like people buy organic spring mix, like I don't know how many times I have it. Like in my we, my husband, and I wrote a book called The Organic Oasis mm-hmm, yeah. Guidebook, and in there I have something about the stats about how much more lettuce people buy and greens mixed right. greens you mixed know greens. like you're saying yeah 
chart and and all those things in there compared so i think it's you know it's a huge need i i i'm so excited about this i mean this is just fantastic options and technology and just you know where we can go instead of people just saying oh we have to stick with what we've got yeah i think that's you know once once it starts to um lift in terms of travel restrictions and just in terms of where we are as a society with the pandemic, uh, we really encourage people to come out and visit our greenhouse, our R&D greenhouse uh, in, in Cleburne, Texas, which is just south of Fort Worth, Dallas, Fort Worth. But, uh, and, I, and I say that because one, seeing is believing. And then two, uh, it's a taste test. Uh, you, you get to go when you, t- when, and, and when you come out here and I'm encouraging you know, anyone just to come out uh, and and I'll give them, or one of my staff will give them a tour. You can taste as you walk along the aisles, uh, and as we give you the tour. So, once you taste what plants ought to taste like, what what chard and arugula ought to taste like, you will then understand. Oh man, this is what we're missing out on. It's not even just about accessibility. It's it's what you mentioned in the beginning. Is there's a nutrition and there's a taste factor that's just missing nowadays from a lot of our produce, all for the sake of accessibility, right? There's a sacrifice there. We want people to have somewhat nutritious greens. We want that some greens is better than no greens in, in your diet. And so we want them to have access to it, but we do it at the expense of volume and, and accessibility. And I think we figured out a way to, uh, to short circuit that and really complete the the loops so that you can have it accessible, but then it's still very nutritious, uh, and the taste profile is is unbelievable. Uh, everyone who walks in our greenhouse and takes a taste test, their eyes just open up uh, because they've never tasted uh, arugula like that or a mustard green that has such a bite, or you know a lettuce that just tastes sweet. So. I uh, would encourage you to do that, but just know that's what we're, that's what people are missing out on is, is the taste profile of, of food and how it originally, you know, when people first started harvesting and planting these, what they were originally tasting. So what are you growing? Does it grow in like a water or a mix or like? Yeah. So, so we use, uh, there's two types of medium that we use. So it's a, it's a hydroponic system and there's two types of medium that we used. One is called rock wool, very, very uh, generic in the industry. Everyone, a lot of folks use rock wool for not just for, you know, uh, for edible plants like this, but also for ornamentals, uh, ornamental plants. And then the second one is called a, a jiffy plug out of, uh, out of Holland. And that's an organic material and uh and really the the science behind it is uh, when you have that medium in there uh in in a hydroponic setting uh, you have two types of roots you've got air roots and you've got nutrient roots and uh the nutrient roots will follow where the water and the nutrients are and so uh, we've got these towers and from the top of the towers all the way down flow uh, water with a nutrient mix a steady nutrient mix uh, that that helps feed the plants and it flows at such a rate uh, that uh, it's anywhere from the absorption rate of our nutrients is so much quicker by a factor of at least five compared to 
your normal ebb and flow uh, hydroponic greenhouses. And then I can't even, uh, I can't even calculate the factor uh, compared to your traditionally uh, farmland grown uh, produce. But the, the nutrient absorption rate is so much greater uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is that water flow with nutrients that allows the plants to grow this much quicker and then has, allows the plants to just be more nutritious and to have that, that distinct taste profile. Uh, it all comes down to nutrient absorption. So at the end of the day, what we really are trying to do is we're trying to be as plant-centric as possible. People will walk into our greenhouses in the middle of winter and be like, man, it is hot in here. And we joke, we're like, hey, well, we didn't build this for you. We built <laughs> these for the plants, right? So uh, that, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to be as plant-centric as possible. And, and being as plant-centric as possible means they need sunlight. I mean, they like, they like uh, the LED lights, but they need, there, there's an aspect about it where we feel like they need sunlight. Even if it's incomplete, even if we have to complement it with grow lights, they do like it. So Eddie, I usually start my show out asking about your very first gardening experience. Like, were you a kid? Were you an adult? Like, how'd you get into it? And like, do you even like really do the growing part or are you a, the tech guy so uh it's interesting uh, i'm i'm a tech guy uh i i came in as ceo uh late last year uh, because they had they had developed the technology and they just needed to take it to market in such a way uh that it just made sense for for a technology guy like myself to come in and lead the team uh, especially since it's a patented technology and, and our model is, is technology licensing. Uh, but at the, you know, at the very, very beginning, my love for greens and my love for growing uh, came from my dad. And uh, I am not a green thumb. Like if you admittedly not a green thumb, uh, I, I can, I can keep my succulents alive and I've got I've got a great uh, fiddle leaf fig, uh, six foot fiddle leaf fig in my house, but that's about the extent of it. Uh, it really the green thumb maybe skipped a generation, but it it really was with my dad and his brother. Uh, they were uh, immigrants from the Philippines, and and my dad came and my mom came to the U.S. in in 1969. But uh, in our house growing up, in which they still they still own. Uh, my dad had all sorts of plants all around the house and and then outside uh, he planted all sorts of uh, fruit trees and you know when I was a little kid they didn't mean much but fast forward 10-15 years and he has this steady harvest of uh, of fruit trees in our backyard and uh, I think that was really the genesis for me uh, being interested in this although the technology to me uh, admittedly is more fascinating uh, and then the prospects of feeding uh, that many people is is really where my heart is uh, there's the green aspect and the growing aspect of me that was uh, that was born out of out of my dad's fruit trees in our backyard fascinating so what did you go to school for business for where'd you go to school so i went like, to how'd you become a ceo you sound so young <laughs> uh you know i i uh i went to school at texas a&m so i do have ag 
somewhere in there in my degree, although it was a it was a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. Uh, but Texas A&M is known for its ag program. Actually, that's what A&M stands for, Agricultural and Mechanical. Uh, and, and back in the day, it was known as uh, the Agricultural and Mechanical College of Texas. So Texas A&M, uh, psychology degree. I got my master's actually in international affairs and public administration. Uh, I had a chance to work for President Bush Sr. in his personal office in Houston, and then uh, had a chance to go on to uh, work in uh, George W. Bush's administration from 2000 to 2006. So uh, in, a, in a different world, I was, uh, I was an analyst at the State Department uh, for the Middle East and for other international affairs. And then I had a chance to then uh, bump up and was President Bush's Asian American spokesperson, sort of surrogate, and ran the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders from 2004 to 2006. So that's where my heart for serving other people came from and uh, was from, honestly, from the Bush family and their Bush Sr. just had this, and it's it's at the school, it's on this huge wall, but he just said, hey, public service is a noble calling. It's something that everyone should aspire to, and it doesn't mean elected office. It just means serving others uh, in, in such a way that you're, you're, you're giving of yourself uh, sacrificially and selflessly in the name for the benefit of others. So that's where my heart for serving others came from was through uh, my experience at Texas A&M and then at the Bush School there. Uh, And then it it bore out through my time in government. And after six years in government, my wife and I had enough and uh, and we found our way back to Texas. We're both from Texas. We found our way back here. And then I got into the technology industry, uh, both at a technology startup as well as and then uh, starting my own, actually, uh, I'm, I, my business partner and I started a digital marketing agency back in 2010, uh, sold it and then bought it back, uh, in 2017 and it's still running actually. Uh, and then, but that allowed me to then take a step back and say, what do I want to do next? And I sat on that for about a year, uh, and, and just thinking, okay, what, what's next in my career while, this agency, it's called BuzzShift, while this agency is still growing, still doing really well, uh, but on my heart, there were, th- there were three things. And one was I wanted to, to do something associated with hardware and software. I had done professional services through the marketing agency and, and been successful at that, but uh, I'm a builder. Uh, I'm not a maintainer. I'm a builder and a grower and a creator. So uh, I wanted to help build or help grow a hardware software company. Uh, The second thing was I wanted to make a huge social impact uh, for every unit of effort that I put in. I wanted to have an exponential output. So for every one level of effort, one unit of level of effort that I put in, I wanted to see a 10 10 or 20x output in terms of social or cultural impact. And then the last thing is I wanted to grow a company that uh, adopted a, a redemptive framework of uh, of operating, and and what I mean by that is, there's uh, most companies are exploitative. 
Uh, and what I mean by that is, is they treat their employees unfairly. Uh, they are a net negative to the community and cultural uh, culture around them. And then the leaders eat first, right? They take, they scrape off the top. Some companies are ethical and those ethical companies ought to be admired. And, and those were, are where they treat their employees fairly. Uh, they're a they're a net neutral to the community and cultural around them, and then the leaders eat alongside their uh, their employees. Right? They they share in the share in the profits. And then the last type of company is uh, or organization is really hard to find, and that's a redemptive uh, company or organization. And that's where the leaders eat last. They're sacrificial. Uh, that's where the employees are not just treated fairly, but they're blessed. Uh, and then the the community and the cultural around them is renewed and restored because that company or organization exists. So I wanted to help build a, a redemptive organization. And all three of those boxes were checked when I came upon Eating Green and, and the potential that it had to to either it was doing that or the potential it had to do one of those three boxes. And so that's why I came on board. Wow. Well, listeners, never let it be said that we can't reach across the aisle and find things that we agree on. So in case you haven't figured it out, I'm a hardcore leftist <laughs> liberal, but I, I am like, I I, I, so I'm thinking of starting this other podcast called Running for Confidence, Walk for Your Country. And I've been trying to figure out like, how am I going to mm. deal with the very political thing I have? But I'm also like, I've been reading a lot of Black Lives Matter books and just different things about the economy. Mm -hmm. And I'm really starting to like, one of my favorite serial, like, you know, it's not really a sitcom, but it's called Borgen. And it's about the government, this woman who leads Denmark, or I think it's Denmark, but they, their government, you know, they have a Green Party and they have a Labour Party and they have like different, it's not just two parties. And I also like, I have, I live in a very Republican area. I have worked side by side by so many Republicans. Like I know we can get along. And, and so I'm excited to hear this and look at you, look at all you're doing. You know, I, I think the view of, well, thank you. Um, I, I mean, you can't really possibly be a rock star millennial born between 1980 and 1995. It doesn't seem like if you already had your master's by 2000, but I'm writing a book about the rock star millennials I interview on my show. It sounds like you're born just a little bit before that. One of those Zionials. Just a, just a little bit so, before. Yes. Just true. outside of that. But, you know, I, I would say, you know, I, I know so many folks uh, on all parts of the political spectrum. And I think, I think when you, when you can look past the politics for a second and just look at their heart and, and really say, man, if they're, I know they care for yeah. the community or, and, and some of them do, some of them don't, right. Some of them are out for power, but there are, there are folks who really just care for the community. They just want to go about it a different way. Yes. Uh, and, and care for the people around them. I, I think that's where the commonality lies. I think that's where the, the reaching across the aisle lies in, in looking at someone and saying, hey, I know where your heart is. We may disagree on how we get to that point, but even if we disagree and we can't come to terms with, with the how, it doesn't change the fact that 
that your heart is is in the right place and that you're you're really trying to to benefit and care for the community around that and that's something i can get behind uh so you know in my time in dc i was really really fortunate it, it was it was at a time from 2000 to 2006 uh it, it was at a time where before it got really partisan but i i mean i i remember softball games under the washington uh monument where we would be playing against you know uh different uh different reps or different senators uh staffers on the other side of the aisle and then we'd all go out for drinks afterwards uh and i know folks who you know who are uh who are married or have boyfriends or partners that are that are opposite them on politics but they're you know but they're together relationally and and those are the folks that i think if you want to talk about a brighter future those are the folks that i think uh, are are going to make the future brighter are the folks that can see past the politics and see the people's what people's core motives are and heart and just say okay we can agree to disagree on these policy objectives but but i know that your heart is is for the people and 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 i can i can look at you and uh as a human right i can look at you as as another person just try maybe trying to do it a different way and and that's all right yeah i mean i don't know i'm just i'm just i've had more i've had just as many arguments with democrats this last three months as i have republicans i've like some of the republicans i know are just like the nicest people just like you're saying i don't think i could be in a marriage like that but i'll tell you the way i've been fighting with some democrats the other day that they call me such a leftist socialist progressive like it was all my fault biden was gonna lose and it was hard for me to vote for biden but you know whatever like you said we're all I think we're all caring humans and like, you know, how we want to go about saving this planet is so anyway, I'm so excited. So what else can we tell listeners about what you got going on? Man, I would say, you know, the, the movement behind vertical farming and in the movement to, for us personally, as a team to redefine what locally grown means, uh, I, I think is something that, everyone can get behind so uh, i can unpack that for a second what what locally grown means right now is very qualitative it's uh it's your farmers markets it's your community gardens it's your you know your backyard uh and and those are all well and good and they they all have their place Uh, but with the pandemic i think it has really accelerated almost every trend out there. The trends were already existing. They were just accelerated with the pandemic. But one of the trends that has been accelerated is this, uh, this idea that you can, you don't have to be subject to this broken supply chain, this broken value chain that we're seeing right now in the produce space, in the food space. Uh, We're seeing, uh, increases in outbreaks of salmonella and E. coli. We're seeing uh, increases in delays in getting food to people's plates. We're seeing shortcuts being made on food safety in the in the meat and even in the produce production uh, chain. And so, you know, we, we're just we're seeing all these breaks in the supply chain. And and the solve for that uh, for these trends is 
is being locally grown. Well, locally grown in its qualitative definition right now won't solve for that. But I think locally grown where uh, three things, one, it's accessible. So can you do something that is accessible to a large amount of people uh, and, uh, and is at a price point that people can afford? Uh, consistent. So that's the second piece of it. Consistent. Can you grow things year round, season agnostic, right? Our community gardens uh, for a, for part, the better part of a season won't grow lettuce, but everyone loves lettuce. It won't grow spinach, but everyone loves spinach. Uh, You can't do that in a community garden because of the seasons. So can we do something that's season agnostic? Can we solve for that? So consistent, accessible, and then the last one is safe. Uh, Can you safely uh, deliver those greens? Can you safely grow those greens and deliver them in a timely manner so that the other two things are fulfilled, being consistent and accessible? And and I think for community gardens, they, they, they check one of those two of those boxes, but they don't check a third. Uh, and then for your, your backyards or your tower gardens, they check one or two of those boxes, but they don't check all three. And then you've got your traditional farms for certain crops, uh, and you've got your traditional greenhouses for certain crops that check one or two of those, but they're still, I mean, they're just, they're not accessible. Uh, and because of the price point or uh, the safety aspect isn't there. So I think we can solve for all three. I think we're trying to lead, I know we're trying to lead a movement to change what locally grown actually means and how it's defined. Uh, So if people can get behind that, uh, I think, I mean, not just for us, but for the industry as a whole, I think that's, I mean, I think that's something that a long-term sort of advocacy uh, for this type of technology and this type of, of growing environment is something I would highly, highly encourage and for, to people explore and research uh, and then figure out ways that they can help. So do you just have the one so far down in Texas? And like, do you have other ones going already? And like, are you selling the lettuce or the greens yet? And what you're producing or is this still all just like really so new? it's relatively new so we've got the one down in uh down in fort worth or, or cleburne we're actually breaking ground on a commercial a commercial greenhouse uh right next to it actually uh with with full harvest offtake contracts uh in hand and so that'll be our first commercial facility uh, we've also been on a, a selling spree if you will people are really starting to take notice uh, in the last, call it uh, 10 to 12 months. Uh, and so there's a, there are a number of them in the hopper and just kind of in, in there winding their way through the sales process. Uh, but our R&D facility right now, uh, we sell some of the produce, but honestly, we give a lot away. So we donate to about 15 different nonprofits here. Again, it's a lot of produce. Uh, and so we donate to 15 different nonprofits. We've got, um, uh, we've got, uh, like domestic violence uh, uh, recovery shelters, women's shelters uh, that we're donating to. We've got food pantries. We've got North Texas Food Bank here. Uh, we've got a homeless shelter uh, that, that we're... But how come you're not selling? Um, so because it's an R&D facility, we're trying to test. Uh, and so 
uh, when we're testing different varietals uh, that the the contracts that people want from a commercial facility is they want to rely upon hey i know you're going to produce this varietal or these three varietals year round and have it be consistent and there's no testing it's production right in an r d facility it's not built for that to fulfill those type of contracts uh, and so the things that we're donating is that it's more of a uh, we're donating what they will take what we can give right which is a different contract if you're taking what we can give versus saying we can we can give you this on a consistent basis those are two different types of facilities uh, so that's why we're oh i'm so glad does you that make said sense? that oh my gosh it totally makes sense because my mom is just constantly on our case why aren't you selling that extra produce why aren't you selling it why are you selling it? i'm like oh my gosh we went from like I, I, like what my husband has done with this mini farm in the last four years like the first year he produced like four times as much food as ever before last year i think he's up to like 10 or 12 times as i mean we grew a ton of potato like he's just mastering growing it but like it is it's, it's just not enough to bring to the farmer's okay. market or to really yeah. consistently say all those things that you're saying yeah like the I, consistency is key when you go out to sell a product and i don't care if it's greens if it's you know, iPhone cases, if it's mugs, whatever it is, uh, you have to, you have to deliver on what you say you can sell. And so there's a consistency aspect that just doesn't happen, you know, back to, you know, back to your point, a consistency aspect that just doesn't happen in a, uh, you know, in a community garden uh, where they demand, where people are demanding uh, that type of produce uh, on a weekly or monthly basis. So that's why that's, and then I worked in a, a restaurant and I asked the owner, you know, what would you tell my, you know, my listeners if they wanted to, you know, break into selling to a restaurant? And he's like, the number one thing was a reliable van. He's like, I have seen more gardens fold over their van breaking down and then missing a deadline. And then I'm out of luck. And, and then the thing falls apart. And he, he was like, exactly. Yeah. So that that's why that's why we don't um we don't sell a lot of what we have out of uh, out of the the R&D greenhouse but the commercial greenhouse that we're building uh next door to it it will be consistent and that's where those those valuable offtake contracts is what they're called in the industry they're basically we will take offtake we will take off of your harvest uh, what you produce and those contracts have to be fulfilled on a very, very consistent basis and not just like, Hey, pounds wise, you can, you produce these amount of pounds, but it's gotta be the certain, the leaf size has to be a certain size and there's a safety aspect to it. And, you know, there's gotta be a, a level of nutrients in it. So it's very, very controlled, uh, very high demand, uh, high specifications. Uh, and, and, how do you measure your nutrient level? Are you using like that BRICS data and a refractometer or like where, how do you? So, that? so the retailers or the, the distributors have their own methods of, uh, of determining what is acceptable to them. Uh, and so, you know, a, a lot of it has to do with, uh, with weight, right. Uh, and then the, the leaf size that fits into clamshells or fits onto their wet wall, uh, and then honestly, it's just consistent so that the folks who see it week after week, people who buy 
their produce week after week, they know they're going to see the same thing. There's a reliability and a uh, just a, a comfort level with consumers about seeing the same thing over and over again, whichever store they go to, right? So, you know, you've got your you got your Kroger's and you've got your your Hy-Vee's, I am a loyal shopper, right? But wh- wherever you go, you <laughs> want to make sure whatever you know, whether it's down on Main Street or whether it's you know in in the suburbs, you want to walk into that same store and see the same type of produce. Uh, and the, there's a consistency uh, that just brings comfort and trust uh, to the consumer. And that's what brands are after. So uh, th- that that's where, uh, you know, that's where the, the quantitative consistency comes in for these commercial facilities. Yeah, completely. I bought one of those clamshells of lettuce. We went to um, get my husband a new chainsaw and went to a different town. You saw it on Facebook and, and I bought this and I was so just, I, I couldn't believe how wet it was on the inside and just like, why do they even like carry this brand? And just, you're so right. And, um, you know, I would like to get away from those clamshell, those plastic things. Like I try so hard, but it, with the pandemic, I just, I can't even bring myself to buy food that's sitting out that people are touching. I live in a place where nobody wears masks. Like the produce people don't wear masks that are putting it out maybe your checkers yeah i i, I am in a very anti-mass faith over fear signs everywhere and just i'm not i just refused i don't know i was reading on the cdc or the fda site that actually there's not really any virus that travels on food yeah you know so my fears are unfounded but <laughs> you know they're they're that's i think that's a the food safety aspect is uh, is a really big, big selling point for us uh, with with these retailers and with these distributors. Uh, they're all focused on food safety, and and I think that's one thing that we're really proud of. Is in our company, we've got a culture of food safety. It's not just a program, uh, but this culture of food safety is uh, all goes all the way down to hey, uh, the the treatment of our water. Uh, through uh, UV treatment kills 99.99% of all plant and then human pathogens. Uh, and so even from the very base level of what the plants are getting, uh, it's, uh, it's as pathogen-free as possible. And then while they're growing, we've got someone uh, on our team whose only task is to make sure uh, the food safe. It's our food safety director. And his only task is to swab and to audit uh, our plants regularly to see uh, any sort of any sort of pathogens, even the smallest amount uh, that are on our plants. So, uh, you know, when you walk in our greenhouse, you can you can we're very confident you can eat it directly off of the uh, off of the vines because um, we know it's just one of the safest environments around to grow food in. Cool, Eddie. I gotta say, I've been visualizing what you've been doing since my very first aquaponics interview, and I, it's just incredible to me. And I think, um, yeah, I, I admire everything your company's doing. I love that it's a what did you call it? A re- redemptive company. Yes, it's a re- redemptive, redemptive organization um, where employees are treated fairly. I mean, how cool would that be? You know we see fair trade on our coffee we see fair trade on our chocolate to see fair trade on our lettuce now that would be getting somewhere absolutely absolutely 
yeah, it's a, it's a vision that I think is very, very achievable. It's not, it's a vision not many people have, not many companies have, because I think people, people just think there's no way we can be redemptive like that. And, and, and I do think we can, and I think we're pulling it off with Eden Green. I really do. Cool. Well, tell people where to find out more. So you can just go to Eden Green, like Garden of Eden, EdenGreen.com. Uh, and then uh, from a social media aspect, all of our social handles are Eden Green Tech. So E-D-E-N Green Tech. And that's, that's where you can find, uh, find any of the information that you want to on our, our technology, our platform, and how we're doing what we're doing. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing with us today and, uh, and just being passionate about this and getting along and changing our world and good luck with everything. Keep us updated. Thank you so much. I would, I will definitely give you updates and uh, I invite you to come down to Texas, check us out. I'll give you a tour myself. All right. Don't hold your horses for me heading to Texas anytime in the near future. I have been like, I was trying to convince my stepdaughter to move to Austin because I was looking up high schools and like one of the best high schools in the top hundred in the United States is down in Austin. And I have heard that it's a really hop in town, but I'm, I'm lucky if I get to go to Whitefish, I don't get to go anywhere. There you go. I do. Right. I'm hoping to go visit my mom in New York someday soon. Well, whitefish isn't bad. I'll, I'll take that. Have you have you been? Do you, have you been to Montana? Do you know whitefish? I have. I sure have. Mm-hmm. Whitefish, Kalispell. It's all. It's wonderful. I love it. Nice. All right. Well, thanks, Eddie. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Listeners, have you heard my most recent interview with J.M. Fortier? Did you know that he started an awesome new venture called Growers and Company? where they have a magazine that's printed that comes out twice a year that highlights the amazing farmers that he's taught personally. So you're going to learn from people who are practice, putting his practices into place on their farms. If you want to be a better farmer, you definitely want to subscribe to this magazine. That's going to be like a coffee table item on your shelf. And then the other thing part of growers and company is there he's created tools that he uses on his farm that he's like studied you know he got to travel all around the world when he wrote his book the market gardener if you don't have that you absolutely have to get a copy of it but he's he's he got to go travel to all these farms and then he would look at tools that they had in the hardware stores or using in these other farms brought them back to his farm you know, talked to a developer, came out with some really cool tools. Like he talks about his broad fork, the handles are just wood and that helps it make it light, but it's sturdy. It's just the exact kind of broad fork that I want. Um, they've got other really cool weeders and different things. And then he's got farmware that he designed that will keep you dry and keep you out there. I know with my, one of my big barriers was my garden shoes. So he's got boots and just great things that are stylish comfortable but most of all they're going to keep you warm and dry when you're out in your garden doing all that hard work so growers and company growers.co check it out get something for your favorite gardener definitely get a small scale farmers are changing the world t-shirt for your favorite farmer marker vendor do you belong to a csa 
how about you want to get them a Christmas present this year? It doesn't have to be on time. I know it might be late when you're hearing this, but make sure you support growers.co. Um, their stuff is super affordable. The Canadian exchange right now. Um, I just bought something for someone, um, a present for Kathy from the composters because I go to her laughter yoga with her. And I think it said it was like $25 and then, it, but it only took $20 out of my bank account. So I, I probably shouldn't be talking about the Canadian exchange, but I know his things are affordable. I research broad forks and what they cost. I, you know, it, it's a great deal. You will get so much use out of that tool. Um, so support growers and co join Patty Armbruster and I for grow live on YouTube live Saturday mornings coming to you in 2021. We'll be answering your questions. We'll be, um, laughing and sharing information that you want to know because they're going to be answers to your questions on YouTube live Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern 10 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. Montana Standard Time, and 8 a.m. Pacific. Send us your questions. You can submit them at the organicgardenerpodcast.com forward slash patty. You can email me at orgpodcast at gmail.com. You can send them to mikesgreengarden at gmail.com. Ask Patty Live. Grow Live with Jackie and Patty. We'll be answering your questions. What do you need to know to grow healthy food in your garden? Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.